There's a rock that doesn't move. It hasn't moved. It will never move, even though the waves come crashing down. There's a tower on a hill. It's always strong. It will never shake. It was standing there before the world began. There's a wave that's coming in, washing over this town. It will make us, break us, reinvent us. It's time to lay me down. On Christ, the solid rock, we will stand. All other ground is sinking sand. These are the words that that Paul was trying to bring to the the early church in the first century, this emerging group of men and women who were trying to take their lives into a whole new adventure, an adventure with God, a personal relationship with God that went so far beyond traditional religion, that went so far beyond structured theology. This was you and God standing together, God in you. God living inside of you by the power of the Holy Spirit because of Jesus Christ and what he did and who he was and who he will always be. And Paul is bringing this message to a small group of people in a place called Corinth. But there's trouble in Corinth. Corinth is one of those cities where there's there's debauchery. There's all kinds of sexual immorality all around. It's just part of the culture. The culture is wobbly. The culture is is tolerant of so many different opinions and, and lifestyles. And Paul has to address these issues in this place for the reason of the church being a light in the world and the hope of the world. He kind of sets it up with a few words in previous chapters. Remember, this is a letter. There are no real chapters in his original letter, but we have it to to delineate places and themes. And in chapter three, he says this this to this group of people, this early church. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it indeed. You are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? What's going on, guys? You've got all kinds of personal agendas. Your self-centeredness is wrecking your lives. It's ruining everything that God wanted for you, that Christ wants for you. Let's get on the same page here. My job is to keep you thinking at a higher level. Right now, you're at 101 level, but I'm not satisfied to keep you there. I want to take you to a better place. Listen to me. And then he says in the fourth chapter, some of you, some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. In other words, what power? What power is there 
in your talking? What power is there really in your arrogance and you thinking that you're big stuff, that you're hot stuff? For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. You want to talk about power? You want power? You got to get it from another place. It's not going to come from you. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip or in love and with a gentle spirit? Should I just come in and and bowl you over? Should I come riding in six shooters blazing? They didn't have six shooters back then, but let's just imagine. Six shooters blazing saying, somebody's going down today. I've got to tolerate this. Or do you want me to come in as as somebody who puts his arms around you and tells you, look, guys, on Christ, the solid rock, we will stand. Everything else is going to sink your lives. The limits have been pushed about as far as they can be pushed. We teeter on the edge of the moral collapse as we, that we like to call freedom and listen to rhetoric that hastens the fall as the fall becomes the breaking news of the hour. We've taken freedom to the extreme and made the extreme accessible 24 hours a day. It's this world Paul writes to today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you the letter. I'm going to read you this chapter, and I'm going to walk you through it. And if you had a chance to look at it during the week, you probably said, I wonder what the boy's going to do with this on Sunday. Because this is a messy chapter. This is not the chapter that I, that I really got excited about bringing to you today. This is hard stuff. It was hard stuff then. It's just as hard today. But it's here, and we're going to go for it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual sexual immorality among you. Now that word sexual immorality is in the original letter porneia. It's what we get our word pornography from. Porn, sexual immorality, sexually immoral, something sexually immoral, graphy to write it to put in writing or to put in some kind of form, something that isn't moral, something that is sexually aberrant. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. Even people outside of the church don't do this. You guys have got to be kidding me. A man has his father's wife, literally his stepmother. It really says woman, has his father's woman. And you are proud, and you're proud of that? Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Shouldn't this sear your minds when you see something like this? Shouldn't you go, this isn't right, we, we have to... We have to go to this person. We have to talk to this person. This isn't right. Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. 
when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Well, Paul, why don't you just call it like it is? Why don't you just say what's really on your mind? Paul says, I have no problem saying what's really on my mind. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, the yeast of self-centeredness, and you just want what you want for yourself because it makes you feel good and it gives you temporal power. But with bread, without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Remember, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Paul is right on on point, right on target. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. Everything else is, is fading away fast, faster than you even think and know. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. I love this. Paul is saying, If you want to really do what you're supposed to do, go find somebody who's greedy. Go find somebody who's a swindler. Go find somebody who's who's worshiping an idol and hang out with those people. That's what you're supposed to do. And you remember, that's what they criticized Jesus for. He was hanging out with the wrong people. Paul says, I'm not talking about what your job is. I'm talking about, but now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy and idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. This is going on in the church. This is going on inside of the church. It's not good. It's not the way the light of the world should be. This is not the light of the world. This is letting the darkness overcome the light, overshadow the light. And so Paul is just saying, come on, folks. You know you're supposed to go out and make a difference in the world, but you're kind of bringing the world on the inside and and you've become totally ineffectual, totally ineffectual in what you're doing. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Look, it's not my job to go around and, and be calling people on stuff outside the church. I'm trying to build something that's going to last forever, that's going to be the hope of the world. Are you not to judge those inside? Should we take care of things here where we're a Christian community, basing our lives on a high calling and a high privilege? God will judge those outside. God takes care of all things in his time. And then he gets to his bottom line. Expel the wicked man from among you. He's out of here. No instant replay. No need to to think about this a whole lot. This is not the way we do this. Out of here. Let's establish a baseline for discussion coming out of a, a, a difficult chapter like this. Number one, we live in a sexually explicit culture to the point where there is at the very least a mild numbness to the many images that flow through the media portals daily. At the very least, there's a numbness. So much comes at us so much of the time, it kind of just makes you numb after a while. 
We also live in a morally ambiguous culture where the boundaries of right and wrong are blurred by personal agendas and political expediency. When I say political, I'm not using politics as a frame of reference. I'm just saying anytime somebody wants to push their agenda, anytime somebody wants to get what they want for their own personal gain, that's political expediency. So it's, it's mind-numbing. It's, it's a morally ambiguous culture that we're in. The moral numbness and ambiguity exert a steady pressure to push Christians away from definitive biblical values dealing, dealing with moral choices. So we're always kind of getting pushed to the margins, pushed out of the ball game. Not to be aware that there are places to draw a line when trying to maintain Christian integrity can put you on a dangerous slope that at the very least might give you bad dreams and at the very worst might result in a tragic outcome you will regret, maybe for the rest of your life. Moral choices always impact others for good or bad outcomes. Moral choices always reveal the truth about what is really believed. Dealing with overt and obvious moral transgressions in the church is a requirement for healthy spiritual community. Let me walk you through this passage and make a few observations. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. Are you proud and you are proud? Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Paul calls it like it is. Paul just sees it and makes the call. No instant replay needed. Question, what do you need to call like it is? What do you see right now where you got to go, and you're proud of that? What do you see right now where you have to go, come on, guys, we got to be better than this. Even though I am not physically present, I'm with you in spirit, and I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Now, you can go a lot of different places out of that passage. You can go all the way back to the book of Job and what's going on there. You can go to where, where Jesus says to, to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You can go to places and passages where it talks about Satan being a liar and a thief and one who's trying to destroy the image of God in men and women. You can go a lot of places theologically. But let me tell you where, where I go when I see that. Let me tell you what Paul's reminding these, these folks of. Paul always puts eternity into the equation of life. Always. Question. Where do you need to put eternity into the equation of your life? Where do you put eternity into the equation of your life? Now, I'm not happy that the Yankees lost the other night. I'm not happy about that. But when I go over here into eternity and I look back, it really doesn't mean all that much. It's just something for fun and something that... I like to do because I, I did it ever since I was a little kid. You know, you have to put things in perspective. In eternity, let me, teach you, let me teach you four things about eternity. 
Eternity brings a microscope perspective. It, it takes something that's there, but now you're going to look at it a lot deeper. You're going to see the details of it. Seriously, one of those electromagnetic microscopes where they, they put some kind of an insect underneath, you know, something that's normal, everyday thing, and you go, oh my gosh, it's unbelievable the things that you see. And then you think, if I can see an insect like that, your little diabolical mind goes, I'd like to put my friend under there and see what he looks like. I'd like to put that person's eyebrow under there and see what that looks like. But eternity brings a microscopic perspective. It lets you see in detail what's really there. Eternity interrogates your motives. It's always saying, do you really want to do that? Do you really want to go there? Is that really so important that you, that you say that right now or that you plan to do that deal that way? Do you want to think about that just a little bit more? Eternity gets to the point. It always gets to the point real fast. We sit around, talk, and debate. Eternity gets to the point, cuts the mustard real quickly. Eternity plays everything backwards. Dr. Henry Cloud says, play the movie backwards. Eternity plays everything backwards. In other words, when you get over here at eternity and you sort of play it all backwards, you go, uh, do you really want that result over there? Because that's what you're going to get if you do this over here. See, eternity always sharpens everything. Paul puts eternity into the equation of life to sharpen your mind. So where do you need to put eternity into the equation of your life right now? He says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. That word, those words, get rid of, get rid of, it means to forcefully throw out. It doesn't mean just get rid of it. It says throw it away as far as you can throw it. Get it out of here. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, the yeast of personal agendas and personal self-centeredness and getting what you want because you just want it but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And Paul's saying, on Christ, the solid rock, we will stand. Everything else is passing away. See, Paul knows how things start with small, seemingly inconsequential steps, and then they go totally haywire. Where are you allowing a small step to take you in the wrong direction right now. As you look at what could be the ultimate result if you continue, how do you feel? You look at just about every situation that we get to see as we kind of look into culture and society and we see, oh, this person fell and that person fell. And you trace it back. It started out with one small, seemingly inconsequential act the push of one last button on a telephone. And it set in motion something that wrecked somebody's life. One off the beaten path trip 
where nobody was supposed to know about where I, where I went, where I am for a couple of days. And it brings down kingdoms, kingdoms that are built out of straw, kingdoms that are built on sand. He says, I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Again, he's saying, you know, you've got you've to make and develop relationships with people who are lost. But when you let lostness get inside of the church, now you're in big trouble. God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Paul is saying we must be the light of the world and keep reaching out to people who are lost just like Jesus reached out. But he's clearly saying grace has standards that must be kept and grace can require courageous action within the body of Christ. Are you holding back from talking to a friend about a moral issue that's clearly taking them in the wrong direction? So what's your next step? And oh, this goes to a place where where it's, it racks our brain. Should I say something? Maybe if, if I say something, I'll be embarrassed. If I say something, they might not listen. If I, what if you don't say something? Paul is clearly delineating a responsibility that you have towards your friend who is going the wrong way. And he's saying, you've got to call them on it. You've got to do something about it. See, the truth is that so often, we take objects, objects like a beautiful plate, and we take care of them, and we keep them in a special place, and, and you know, if we stack them up, and, and they're not just right, we kind of straighten them out, and we go, these are the special creations that we have in our lives, and, and sometimes we take care of these things more than we take care of our own bodies, more than we take care of our own minds. It's as if with our minds and our bodies, we just go, and we let it shatter. And yet, and yet we, let, we let things like this rule our lives. We have to take care of this. God says, you've got to take care of this. This is the most important thing. You are created in my image. You are created in my likeness. Take care of what I have given to you as a gift. Your body, your mind. Sharpen your mind to take care of all things. It's a tough chapter. It's a tough message. So what do you do after a message like this? I had a few thoughts. A, I won't watch Glee anymore. B, I'm going to live in a bubble and only have food brought in once a week by a nun or a monk. <laughs> C, I'll close my eyes when I'm paying for coffee at 7-Eleven. Do not look below the counter. Do not look below. And as soon as I say that, some of you are going, I got to get to 7-Eleven and check out below the counter. And then you'll blame it on me. I sinned because the pastor told me about it. I didn't know it was even there. D, I'm not going to tweet and pray for dates. I'm hip to the tweeting. (laughs) And finally, I'm sorry for everything I've done wrong since I was three. See, you just 
everything I did wrong since I was three, I confess and I just laid out there. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about sharpening your mind. I'm talking about developing moral fortitude. One, I will have someone I'm accountable to. I will have someone in my life who I invite to ask me the hard questions, to ask me about what am I doing and what am I thinking and where am I going and what am I reading and what am I being tempted by? I will have someone I'm accountable to. I will let eternity into my life's perspective on school issues, career issues, and family issues. I will let eternity play everything backwards. I'll let eternity interrogate my motives. I won't let friends make bad choices without my moral two cents. I've got some friends and they're making bad choices and I'm just letting it happen. Sharpen your mind. I'll have a set of biblical principles to keep me from becoming morally wobbly in a morally wobbly world. That means not that you kind of stick them on or you clip them on, but biblical principles that become so much a part of you that it's just you, it's who you are, it's the way you think, it's the way you live, it's the way you, you are becoming. And that's why we do so much of what we do here. That's why high school students go on a retreat so they can have these principles driven deep into their lives. They just become who they are. It's why we do what we do in Promised Land. It's why my grandchildren listen to Christian music and sing Christian songs when I'm up there visiting them. So their little minds begin to understand that this is the way the world really is. You know, I once worked for the Shasta Company, not one of the most well-known beverage manufacturers in the world, but you may have been acquainted with Shasta at one time or another. I was going to seminary in Portland, Oregon, and my job was to go around to all the grocery stores, make sure the Shasta was on the shelves, that, that the product was stocked, that it was stocked in the right way so you could see the name and, and so that it was attractive so people would buy the product, and then I would have a job. So I was a merchandiser for Shasta. My boss was a guy that used to be a former NBA ref. You know, so I was always expecting him to go traveling, you know, something uh, technical. You didn't park your car right in the parking lot, Simone. So we're doing a little evaluation thing at a fast food restaurant. The thing about this boss was every other word that came out of his mouth was a four-letter word. And I am not exaggerating. It's like every other word. I, it's impossible to do, but he somehow pulled it off. And so I'm sitting there at this table, and I'm getting like, bam, bam. I'm getting hit left and right, and four-letter word, four-letter word. Oh, and I'm a seminarian, and he knows I'm a seminarian. And, and it's, at this point, I couldn't take it anymore. I just said, John, do you realize, like, every other word is a curse word? He didn't even realize it. See, there was something that was built into my life that allowed me to bring that out and then share that with him. And then he stopped doing that with me. And I don't know if he did it you know, at home, if he was calling technical fouls on his kids, technical or what he was doing. But, you know, you've got to have these biblical principles, and they're just a part of your life because the morally wobbly stuff in a morally wobbly world is hoping that somebody's there 
to pull him back from the edge. When I let myself down, I'll ask for forgiveness and move on in grace and love. No perfect people. Just people that are called to live in him and through him and with him. And finally, I'll keep reaching out to the lost world Christ gave himself for as I become an integral part of the church, the body of Christ. These are the parameters of moral fortitude. These principles will sharpen your mind. You know, there's actually a book called Chiseled that's written to young men trying to help them understand that there's a better way to live and how to live that way in Christ. And in that book, there are two principles that I'd like to, to share with you. A changed heart, the author says, is ultimately God's business. Still, God invites us to participate in the process. God provides this crazy envelope of existence called grace, and God's grace is what changes us. Think of it this way. Developing maturity at a heart level depends on two things. One, the power of God in our life, and now this is the power move. Two, the choices we make which demonstrate our willingness to let God's power change us. The choices we make, which demonstrate our willingness to let God's power change us. They conclude, it doesn't really matter what place your spiritual life is at right now. You don't have to be Joe Christian to begin the process. God welcomes anybody to journey with him. You have to be willing to step further. You just have to be willing to step into it. Are you ready? Are you ready to sharpen your mind? It was January the 12th, 2007, at exactly 7.51 a.m. in a major subway station in Washington, D.C., L'Enfant Plaza, when a young man in a baseball cap, T-shirt, and beat-up jeans walked up to a bench, sat down, people rushing everywhere, busy time of the day, people trying to get to work, this kid walks up, sits down, opens up a violin case, and pulls out a violin. It's a Stradivarius. It was built in the 18th century. It's one of the most expensive violins in the world. He begins to play. He begins to play. Of the 1,097 train riders who passed by this young man on that particular morning, Seven stopped to listen, only seven, as he played some of the most beautiful music ever, ever put down upon paper. But three days before that, on January the 9th, Joshua Bell, one of the finest violinists in the 21st century, had played to sold-out Boston Symphony Hall at $100 a ticket to sit there and listen to him. Boston Symphony Hall sold out, 100 bucks a ticket to listen to this young man. That morning's take, 32 bucks. 32 bucks because people were rushing by something that was so amazing, they didn't even see it. They were focused on, this is where I'm going, this is what I have to do, I have to be, be here, and, and it's I got too many things on my agenda today. 
And you see beauty and wonder and amazement and the beauty and the wonder and the amazement of God Almighty through Jesus Christ can be right in front of our eyes. But if we're too busy, we're going to live lives of moral bankruptcy instead of allowing eternity to change our whole perspective. There's a rock that doesn't move. It hasn't moved. It will never move, even though the waves come crashing down. There's a tower on a hill. It's always strong. It will never shake. It was standing there before the world began. There's a wave that's coming in, washing over this town. It will make or break us, reinvent us. It's time to lay me down. On Christ, the solid rock, we will stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And so Paul writes to remind these early church people about what they're called to what they're called for and what this new life in Christ is all about and what he says to them he says to us today sharpen your mind dear heavenly father thank you for allowing us to be able to read these words penned long ago and yet fresh and real for the world in which we live today Father, I pray for each person here that they would take one principle and live it out this week. I pray that maybe they'll let eternity to be a little more an important part of each and every day. I pray someone will go to a friend and pull him or her back from the edge. I pray that we'll understand that biblical principles always win the day. And I pray, Father, for all of us that we'll always know the foundation, the strong foundation upon which to build our lives. In Christ, the solid rock, we will stand. In Jesus' name, amen. the sunlight, mine is the morning, born of the one light, Eden saw play, praise with Eden. 